It's good to be back with you here this morning. If you have your Bible with you, would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Last time I was here, we talked about the mission of the church in the midst of a pandemic, more specifically, missions in the church in the midst of a pandemic. And I think you are all aware that the pandemic has affected every aspect of society, including what the church is able to do and the missionaries that we're able to send out. I have missionary friends all over the world who can tell you stories about how the pandemic has changed or even sometimes stopped the ministries that they were involved in. They can't go to the places where the, the Lord has called them to go. They're stuck where they're at. They can't go across borders in other countries. And even missionaries who are in country, they have to stay at home. They're not allowed to go anywhere. And I asked the question the last time, what happens to missions in the midst of a pandemic? Well, this whole pandemic thing that is closing borders is really nothing new for missions. We deal with this sort of thing all the time. Today, our estimate is that 90% of the unreached people groups around the world, that is, ethnic groups that don't have a Bible, they don't have a church, maybe they don't have any witnesses, 90% of those groups today are now in closed or restricted countries that don't allow missionaries to come in. So this whole question about, well, what happens to missions when the pandemic closes borders, in some sense is not a new question for missions. In fact, as I said last time, it was something that the early church faced. Back in Acts chapter 13, you will remember, how the church in Antioch was gathered together for prayer, seeking the Lord's will for what they should be doing. And the Holy Spirit directed them and said, set aside Paul and Barnabas and send them out. And the church in Antioch did. They sent Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries. And Paul and Barnabas became Paul and Barnabas and Titus and Timothy and Luke. And the team just multiplied and spread the gospel in one new area and one new town after another. And it's a wonderful story in the history of missions. But you may not know but by the, that by the second century, that had changed dramatically. The situation of the church by the second century had changed to the point where they weren't sending missionaries out anymore because the persecutions that had started in the first century had intensified in the second century to the point where they weren't sending missionaries out anymore. Mostly they were focused on just surviving and living where they were at. In the second century, Rumors had spread throughout the Roman Empire, false rumors, but rumors about horrible things that Christians did. 
blasphemy, atheism, cannibalism, horrible things that were not true, but were so commonly believed about Christians that by the second century, if you were brought before a magistrate or a governor and were accused of being a Christian, the policy of the government was, if you say in front of the governor, yes, I am a Christian, that itself demands that you be punished because anybody who would admit to being a Christian in their minds is admitting to all of these horrible things and you're a stubborn, silly, stupid person, you must be punished. So you can imagine the pressure that put on the church. Squeezing the church all through the Roman Empire to the point where they're not sending out missionaries anymore to new places. By the 3rd century, it's even worse. By the 3rd century, the church, because of its righteous testimony and godly living, has overcome the false rumors. Hardly anyone believes them anymore because they've met too many Christians. But by the 3rd century, the Roman Empire is on the decline. And the Roman emperors, along with the Roman army, are convinced it must be the fault of the Christians who are not worshiping the gods of Rome. And so the Roman emperors, along with the Roman army, begin the worst of the persecutions. Not just condemning Christians if they are brought in and accused of being a Christian. The army and the Roman government are seeking out Christians wherever they can find them to try and wipe out the church. And again, church is not sending out missionaries anymore like they did back in Acts 13. The pressure on the church is just too great. But here's the good news. Go back to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and the church begins with 3,000 baptized believers. Now skip ahead to the end of the 3rd century, uh, the year 313 A.D., when a Roman governor finally puts an end to the persecutions. The year 313 A.D., the persecutions end. By the end of the persecutions, our best studies calculate that at that point, 300 years later, one out of every ten people in all of the Roman Empire now confess to be Christians. Now that may not sound very much like very much to you, but if you do the math on that, that means that the church had doubled in size every 20 years for 300 years. Think about that for a moment. That's an amazing figure. For 300 years, not for 50 years, not for 60 years, not for 80 years. Consistently for 300 years, despite the persecutions getting worse with every decade, the church doubled in size every 20 years 
for 300 years. Which leaves us asking the question, how in the world did the church keep growing? Apparently, the church during this time was just as missions-minded as ever, even though they couldn't send missionaries out across borders. And it produced an amazing fruit in church growth, maybe the greatest era of church growth in the history of the whole church. How did missions happen despite all of that pressure from the persecutions? This is where 2 Corinthians 2 comes in. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. You know, a study of the church growth, a study of missions in those early centuries, doesn't produce a great evangelistic campaign or great preachers of the gospel or great missionary heroes. The study of the church growth during that time ends up focusing on the question, why were so many people coming to faith in Christ despite the fact that the church is being persecuted? And despite the fact that we don't find any great heroes, so to speak, of the faith who are preaching great crusades or missionaries going to far off areas. The study becomes why are so many coming to faith in Christ? And the answer to that that comes back to us from the testimonies of people is, it was the character of the Christians that they knew. The pleasing aroma of Christ that Paul is talking about here. It was an aroma of righteousness and faith that spread from the Christians in their daily lives and daily walk that went through society and people who knew Christians would say, that's what I want. That is what I need. The pleasing aroma of Christ, the study of these testimonies of those who came to Christ during this time has been done by uh, a scholar named Alan Kreider. And he has pointed out in these testimonies four characteristics of the Christians that are mentioned again and again and again in the testimonies of those who come to faith in Christ during this time. We talked about two the last time I was here. One is that Christians were not frightened by the oppressive spirit world. You know, today, in the Western world, in North America, the devil's strategy is secularism. He's been somewhat successful in convincing people that God doesn't exist, but he's been very successful in convincing people that he doesn't live, that he doesn't exist. 
But in most of the rest of the world today, people live in great fear of the spirits and the spirit world. And that's the way it was in the ancient world. And the Christians, they weren't living pretending that the devil didn't exist. But on the other hand, and this was even more powerful at the time, they weren't living in fear of these spirits. Why? Matthew 28:18 because Jesus told them then Jesus came and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Christians lived in the confidence that as members of the body of Christ, children of Jesus Christ, they had no fear of the devil. They didn't have to fear him. And that was a very powerful testimony to so many whose daily lives were dominated with the question of what spirit might I offend today? I have to be so careful. Another characteristic that Kreider has pointed out, Christians lived, he calls, the beautiful, righteous life. Just the way Christians lived They were people that you could trust. And the way that they lived was so attractive to so many others. There's an early church pastor, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, you can guess how his life ended. He describes it this way. He says, We who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in self-control. You think that There's a lot of immorality in our society today. Oh, there was just as much in the Roman Empire. We who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in self-control. We who made use of magic arts, again, to try and control these spirits, now we've dedicated ourselves to the unbegotten God, Jesus Christ. We who once took most pleasure in the means of increasing our wealth and property now bring what we have into a common fund and share with those who are in need. He finally, finally he said, We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their customs, now after the manifestation of Christ, we live together. We fellowship together and we pray for our enemies. I mentioned the last time the difficulties of racial divide in our country today. Hey, here's the answer to that right here. And the Christians in the early days had discovered that. The two that I want to talk about this morning are the third, how they related to poor people. One of my favorite stories from the time comes from a young man whose name was Pacomius. He lived in southern Egypt, and these were in the last days of the third century. This was during some of the worst times of the persecutions. And as a young man living in southern Egypt, one day he got swept up by the Roman army. When the Roman army needed more soldiers... They didn't open up a recruiting booth. They sent the army and they swept through an area and they picked up any young men that they found and now you're in the army. 
And you didn't have a chance to usually even say goodbye to your family. And whatever you were wearing when they grabbed you, well, that's what you're wearing. And then they would sweep them off, take them on a long march to wear them down, make them more submissive, till they would finally get to their training camp. That's what happened to Pecomius. He's walking out on the street one day. The Roman army sweeps through. He is swept up, doesn't even have a chance to say goodbye to his family. All he's wearing is the clothes that he has that day. And now they march day after day after day. And he tells that they arrived on the outskirts in a field near a small town. And there they were told, all right, lay down and rest. Tomorrow we'll keep marching. So they lay down to rest. They're exhausted. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They are cold. And they just collapse. And then to their great surprise, a number of people from the town come out of the town and go among these young men and say, do you need some water? We brought some water for you. Do you need some food? We have some food for you. Are you cold? Here. Here's an extra blanket or a robe or something to keep you warm. And Pacomius was just blown away by this. And he kept asking, who are these people? Why would they do this for us? They don't know any of us. Who are they? Who are they? Who are they? And I think you've already figured it out. These were Christians from the town who had heard about these young men who had been swept up and heard about how tired and hungry they were and they went out of the town and brought them what they had. I think it's even more remarkable to remember this is during the time of some of the worst persecutions where Christians are already suffering on their own. But they hear these people in need and they leave the town and they go out to help them. And Pecomius said, if I ever survive this, I'm going to become a Christian. And he did. He survived the Roman army, and then he became a leader in the early church. And we hear that sort of testimony from many people. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 to 36, Jesus says to us, Love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Let me repeat that last phrase for you. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Our Lord has given a number of very important tasks to the church. The first is to worship Him. Above all else, worship Christ. We are also to make disciples, evangelism, and teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded us. Evangelism and discipleship. Those are commands from the Lord. There's another command that we sometimes forget. Perhaps because it's not as high a priority as the first two, but it is a command. 
And the command that he gives to us is, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Be kind to those who suffer. Help those who are poor. It is one of the commands that our Lord has given to the church. Remember, I just read what Justin Martyr said, pastor in the early church. We who once took most pleasure in the means of increasing our wealth and property, now we delight in bringing what we have into a common fund that we use to help those in need. And this is the third characteristic of Christians that is so often mentioned by those who come to faith in Christ and join the church despite the persecutions. They are amazed at the generosity and the kindness of the Christians. A bit later, after the church was granted freedom and the persecution stopped, another emperor came along and he wanted to take the Roman Empire back to the worship of the Roman gods. He's called Julian the Apostate. <clears throat> Julian the Apostate. In talking to his pagan friends about how to get the Roman Empire to turn away from Christianity and back to the Roman gods, listen to what he says. Why do we not see that it is... Let me start again. Why do we not see that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers and their pretended holiness that have done more to increase their religion than anything else? For it is disgraceful for us that these Christians support and take care of not only their own poor, but ours as well. During this pandemic, I have to ask the question, what are we going to be known for? Are we going to be known as those who are hoarding toilet paper or canned goods or whatever it is? Or are we going to be known as the people, as Jesus told us, who are merciful and share what they have. This was a powerful testimony of the church back in the early days. The last characteristic, the fourth one, Christians were at peace when facing death. Christians were at peace when facing death. You know, I've mentioned these stories about Christians being put on trial. In the second century, asked, are you a Christian? And if you say yes, you can be made a slave or you can be executed. And Christians are asked, are you a Christian? And Christians will stand there before the governor and under threat of death will say, yes, I'm a Christian. You go into the third century where the Roman government and the army are hunting down Christians and taking them and putting them on trial and throwing them to the lions or putting them in the arena to be executed in horrible ways. 
and these Christians who will be put on display in the Colosseum and put to death in horrible ways for the entertainment of the crowds, they face it with a courage that others cannot believe. To the point where we have so many stories from the Roman governors of frustration. Stories that go like this. A certain person was brought before me accused of being a Christian. I asked, are you a Christian? And they say, yes. And I say to them, no, don't say that. Don't be so foolish. And this is a common story. The Roman governors will even plead with them. Don't say something like that. Just say no, throw some incense on the fire to the Roman gods, and I'll let you go. And the Christian will say, no, I will not serve any other gods. I belong to Jesus Christ. And the governor will start to threaten them with worse and worse punishments, finally will give up, lose his patience, and say, all right, I tried, I give up, you've asked for it, take him to the Colosseum. But before they take him away, someone else who is observing all that is going on, maybe even sometimes more than one person, will come out of the crowd and they will say, and I'm a Christian too. What? And the poor governor is just astounded. I mean, the whole point of all of this is to get people to stop saying they're Christians. And so he threatens them with all of these things. And then when he finally condemns them to death, others come out and publicly, voluntarily say, yes, I'm a Christian too. And so he ends up condemning a number of people to death at the same time. And the governors write about this frustration, and they don't understand it at all. But we understand it when we read the testimonies of so many people who say, the reason that convinced me was, I would see Christians facing death, and they were not afraid. They were not afraid to die. John chapter 11, after the death of Lazarus, Jesus arrives three days later, and Martha is just heartbroken because her brother has died. And you remember what Jesus told her? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Christians believed that. They believed that Jesus had promised eternal life and the physical death here in this world would not change that. I know a missionary who was serving in West Africa and he had started a work in an area where there were no other witnesses. He had been working in this town, ministering for some time, and there was no fruit. But finally, after ministering there for quite some time, one, in the, one of the men in the village decided to follow Christ. And it was a great joy. 
finally an encouragement. And it was not a superficial conversion. He said, this man was wonderful. He was so excited to know Jesus and to learn more and gather together with the missionary and learn more of the stories in the Bible and more about who Jesus is. And he was always talking about Jesus with others in the town. This went on for a while. When one day the missionary was in the town and somebody comes running into the town and he said something terrible has happened. The men were all working out together in this distant field and a dangerous, poisonous snake has bitten one of them and he's going to die. And it was the one Christian. And the missionary was just crushed. And as he says, he immediately set out to the field to go and find the man and find his Christian friend. And he said, as he traveled out to find the field and find the men, he just poured his heart out to the Lord and pled with the Lord. He said, Lord, this is the only spiritual fruit that I've seen in all my time there. Please don't take it away. And he is such a passionate witness for Christ. And he loves the Lord so much. Please spare his life. Spare his life. Spare his life. When he finally arrived where the men were, his Christian friend was dead. But when he arrived... All the other men immediately gathered around him and said, We want to know more about Jesus. You must tell us more about Jesus. And the missionary said, Why? They said, We have never seen anyone die like he died. He wasn't afraid. He sat down. He talked to us. He sang. It was even like he was looking forward to what was happening next. We've never seen anyone so peaceful facing death. We want this Jesus also. And that's the sort of thing that we find in the testimonies back in the early days of the church. They would see Christians facing death and that would be the final stroke. Christians can face death without fear. Philippians chapter 1, we see that same attitude in Paul. Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you hear his prayer there? He's praying for that courage, even when death comes. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain. 
Paul had that courage and sought more of that courage, that peacefulness facing death. You know, we lived for most of our lives in Bolivia, and early on we visited the work among the Yuki tribe, a very violent tribe. In fact, a missiologist friend of mine says he believes that the work among the Yuki was the most difficult work that new tribes undertook in all of their history. Very violent, resistant group of people. And when we first arrived, we visited that work. And there was a settlement of a whole number of Yukis that a number of years before had been persuaded to leave their violent ways behind and live in a secure place. And there I met Steve Parker. And Steve Parker had just returned from living in the jungle and trying to find a last remnant of this tribe that were living out there. And he said, three months ago, I was able to bring in a group, a remnant group, to this settlement here to leave their violent way of life behind. And he said, so I haven't seen those several people for three months. And now, three months later, I don't recognize any of them. They come up to talk to me, and I don't know who they are until they tell me. Because, he said, their faces and their posture and their countenance have changed so dramatically. He said, when I was living with them out in the jungle, and they were living their violent ways and living in the dangers of the jungle, he said, they were always a little hunched over. And he said you could just see the fear tightening their faces. Now, three months later, I see them living here and they stand up. And their faces are relaxed and even sometimes they smile. And I can't even recognize who they are until they tell me. That's the sort of peacefulness that people would see in Christians in facing death, in facing dangers that would lead them, despite the persecutions, to say, I want that too. I want that too. I need to finish up. My question for all of us this morning is, which way are we living? Are we living like the world in fear, in fear of the pandemic, in fear of the next pandemic, in fear of death, in fear of sickness? Or are we partaking and clinging to the hope in Jesus Christ? Are we those who are hoarding what we have for prevention of any next tragedy that might take place? Or are we those who are always on the lookout for those we can share what we have with, as Jesus asked us to? I am saddened by all that this pandemic has done. I really am. 
all the way from things that's happened on the other side of the world, in countries that I know of, to the way it's impacted here in Wisconsin. I'm saddened by the way it's affected many churches. I'm saddened by the way it's affected missions. But you know what? I look back at how the early church handled persecution, and I conclude by saying, if this pandemic were somehow to make us more serious about our faith and more dedicated to Jesus Christ and bring out of us more of that pleasing aroma of Christ, I would rejoice. I would say, thank you, Lord, for all of these troubles. I want to conclude with a word of prayer. Would you pray that with me too? Let's seek the Lord. Our dear Father, we've been facing this pandemic. Maybe it'll be over soon. We don't know. But there are always troubles. And there are always obstacles. Oh, dear Father, we do long to live in the hope of our salvation and overcome all the fears that the enemy is trying to plant in our hearts. May you strengthen our faith and give us a hope that endures. And may you give us a faith that makes us generous with all that you have given to us. Wise and storing up treasures in heaven that will last forever. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.